now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm Zed Jelani. I am a freelance journalist who is a frequent contributor to Persuasion. This past week, I had a piece in Persuasion called The Moderate Minority. You may have been following the New York City mayoral race as one of America's marquee cities. I think the cultural and social and political ramifications of what happens in its politics matter elsewhere. New York is in many ways a sort of cultural leader of the United States. And I think the mayoral race there is actually fairly emblematic of what's happening in the Democratic coalition. You have two candidates. One is Andrew Yang, who's an entrepreneur who ran unsuccessfully for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020. And you have Eric Adams, who is a local borough president who has been a fixture of New York City politics for decades. And Yang and Adams have consistently been in the top two or three candidates in in the mayoral primary there, which will take place on June 22nd. I use this piece basically to analyze the sort of political orientation that they've adopted and the political coalitions that they're putting together. Because I think that these coalitions and this sort of ideological composition uh, mirrors a lot of what we're going to see in the future of the Democratic Party. You have the large share of minority voters, particularly African-Americans and Latinos, going for candidates like Yang or Adams or who have very moderate political orientations. Eric Adams is a former NYPD officer. He has rejected any call to defund the New York Police Department. Andrew Yang has sounded very similar notes. And the progressive candidates like Maya Wiley, Scott Stringer, you know, they just haven't quite gotten to that top one or two position in the polling because I think that they're largely out of step with the lion's share of voters. I think like over 50% of voters in this upcoming primary are expected to come from minority communities. They're going to be Black, Latino, or Asian. This creates a, a situation where taking the more left-wing position actually makes you much less popular with a lot of minority voters because those are the people who live in places, for instance, in New York City, I think, that have unfortunately faced the brunt of the violent crime increase. Something I note in my piece is that something like over 95% of the people who were shot in New York City over the last year were Black or Latino, right? I mean, these were neighborhoods, I think, that have had persistent problems with public safety, and I think that's gotten much worse over the past year. So I don't think it's super surprising that many of these voters see candidates like an Eric Adams or like an Andrew Yang as taking a sort of more pragmatic line. I think somebody like Adams has argued that something like defund the police, you know, the constituency for it might be the young, white, folks out in Brooklyn or people who've moved into the city in recent years or who, who don't necessarily live in neighborhoods where crime and public safety have been on the top of people's minds. Why this matters if you don't live in New York City is that I think you're going to see a lot of the same thing playing out in the rest of the country. I'm from Virginia in the U.S., and we just saw Terry McAuliffe, the consummate moderate candidate, sweep our Democratic primary for governor. And I think he did that with the support, again, of many longtime established minority communities who tend to have a more moderate or pragmatic view of politics and what is possible. And also, I think, just experienced a slightly different set of issues, including having concerns about public safety. Whereas I think a lot of the younger, more left-wing components of the Democratic coalition, they may be very outspoken, they may be very on, on the cutting edge of progressive issues, but they just don't necessarily have the same long-time concerns about things like public safety, about pragmatic approaches on things like economic issues or public education. I hope, I hope you are able to read the piece and get through it. And I'd love to hear your feedback. 
leave a comment and share your view on this. If I'm off base, I'm always happy to hear it. I'm always happy to see people who disagree. But we'll see when the, when the race actually takes place next week. Zed Jelani's piece called The Moderate Minority was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. Well, today it's my real pleasure to welcome my old friend, Jonathan Rauch, to the podcast. Jonathan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a great journalist as of a few days ago, a columnist at Persuasion. And he wrote a really important book called The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, a book which explains why disinformation is so dangerous, why cancel campaigns degrade our ability to think about the world, but also a book that describes in positive ways how it is that humans have built a system for pursuing and discovering truth and why that is so beneficial to society. Our conversation has taken us deep into understanding the system of knowledge, the threats to it, and what we can do to defend it. Jonathan Rauch, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. I'm such a fan, you and Persuasion and the podcast. Well, I'm a huge fan of your writing. And I actually, we've talked about these topics a lot, but I'm looking forward to an opportunity to push you on some of these questions and get your view of this moment, this intellectual moment, in some extent, this political moment in one sort of concentrated piece. I guess, you know, you're really concerned about attacks on the role of truth and the feasibility of truth and have written a defense of truth. Why should we think that truth is so important and under attack at the moment? First, why it's important. The subtitle of my book is a defense of truth, but it's really a defense of objective knowledge, which is as close as we ever get to truth, meaning you know, we're always adjusting it. But it is cumulative and it is progressive. And it did just put the vaccination in my left arm that's protecting me from COVID right now. So it's important for that reason, but it's also important because every society, large or small, whether a small tribe or a mighty nation needs a way to come to some kind of agreement about what's real and what's not, at least on big public questions, you know, not necessarily on questions about our own lives. But that turns out to be very hard to do. And if you can't do it, societies become unmoored from reality. They break into sects with conspiratorial leaders. They become vulnerable to demagogues on reality. Typically, very frequently, they get involved in complete breakdowns and civil wars. So symptoms of what's been called an epistemic crisis include things like extreme polarization, conspiracy theories, chilling, where a lot of people are just afraid to speak out, demagoguery. And we're seeing all of those things now in the United States. The thesis of my book is this isn't just happening. This isn't like a natural disaster. And it's not just a result of, you know, people lose faith in institutions. This is partly resulting from a very deliberate attack on what I call the constitution of knowledge by nameable actors who know what they're doing and are acting in very sophisticated ways to, to undermine our epistemic constitution. So who are these actors? What is the nature of this attack on truth? The core notion here is disinformation, information warfare. I define that as organizing and manipulating the social and media environments for political advantage, specifically to dominate, divide, disorient and demoralize a political opponent. And there are lots of ways to do this. This goes back hundreds of years. But the two big ones right now, the ones I worry the most about, are disinformation and canceling. 
And of the two, I worry more about disinformation. And here, the nameable actor would be Donald Trump and his enablers and friends in conservative media, cable news, talk radio, the Republican Party, and some foreign actors are involved in this as well. But there I argue that we should not just view Trump as, you know, some kind of idiot savant or bumbler who does a lot of silly, stupid things and lies sociopathically. In fact, I argue he is the most brilliant and innovative and effective propagandist since probably the 1930s. He's up there with Putin. I think he's better than Putin. And the reason is that he figured out something no one else ever tried before, ever thought of trying in an American context, which is adapting and refining Russian-style disinformation tactics to the U.S. political environment and turning those tactics against the American people from the office of the presidency. The culmination of that campaign is, of course, Stop the Steal, the massive disinformation campaign against the election. It began over a year ago in April of 2000, and it has convinced 75% of the Republican Party that this is no longer a democracy, that the person now in the White House did not win the election. We've never seen anything like that in America, at least not since the 1850s. It's frightening. So when you say that this is a set of tactics which in certain ways were first pioneered by Putin, but you think that Trump actually used them in a more effective or more subtle way, what are those tactics? I mean, obviously, you know, I think every listener to this podcast will have a sense of the lies around the election and the nature of Stop the Steal and so on. But if you want to sort of give a more analytical account of the kind of tactics that Donald Trump has used in power and that other authoritarian populists around the world have used in their context and some dictators like Putin have used, how would you describe them? So there are two or three big ones. The first and most important is what researchers at the RAND Corporation and elsewhere called the fire hose of falsehood tactic. What this does is it, instead of trying to censor information, by bottlenecking it, it realizes that you can much more effectively just drown out truth by swamping the environment with so much falsehood, sometimes mixed with assaulting of half-truth and even truth. But you just put out masses of lies at a rate in which no one can keep up with it. You can't possibly debunk it all. It would be silly even to try because it doesn't matter if the lies are mutually contradictory. But what you do is you swamp the information system with so many lies and conspiracy theories. People become disoriented. They become cynical. They don't know who to trust. You dumbfound and disorient mainstream media that try to check it, can't possibly keep up. You do this over every channel simultaneously. We saw that with Stop the Steal. They were using the office of the presidency, of course, and his Twitter account. But they were also using conservative media, Republican politicians, and the courts. Dozens of lawsuits filed all of them meritless, as another form of spreading disinformation. This just disorients and drowns people. It's very effective. They don't know which way to turn, and that opens the door to demagogues. Putin is very good at this. A good example, Sergei Skripal, the poisoning of him and his daughter. This is, you know, they some Soviet agents went to Britain and used Novichok, a nerve agent, to poison two people. And when they were nailed for it, Russians said, we have an explanation for this. In fact, we have dozens of them. And they just poured out, well, It was a suicide. It was a lover's quarrel. It was an accident. It wasn't Novichok. It wasn't a nerve agent. It was a nerve agent, but another nerve agent and so forth and so on. That's fascinating because it's not saying here is one counter theory, which is as plausible as the main one. It is trying to muddy the waters by coming up with lots and lots and lots of different theories. And whenever somebody says, oh, this is like, well, what about that? To coin a phrase, this is not about persuasion. This is about disorientation. Somebody's given me an interesting metaphor for this, which is if you're trying to defend against a nuclear attack, 
if you have a kind of iron dome system, you can shoot out of the sky most rockets. And actually, most nations have a very limited number of nuclear missiles. So in principle, you should be able to defend against them. The problem is that if the adversary sends hundreds of missiles, only five or six of which may have nuclear weapons, but you don't know which ones do. And so you're able to blow up 80, 90% of the rockets, but if one of them with a nuclear warhead gets through, you're screwed. And so it's just the number of the attack that, you know, any one rocket you could blow out of the sky, but it's the number of the rockets that ends up overwhelming you. That's brilliant. I'll steal that. The fact that there's this multiplicity going on, as Stephen Bannon famously put it, flood the zone with shit. This is a structured attack and it is coordinated. And Trump was coordinating it. That's why he started the campaign against mail-in voting. He was signaling to a network what the message was going to be, and he was setting up the network and testing it so that after election day, it would be ready to go. The other big thing that he does, though there are a lot, is what I call conspiracy bootstrapping. And we saw this from day one, too. And this is where you say, a lot of people are saying X. You use that to float a rumor. And then once it begins to spread, then you begin to say, well, it needs to be investigated. It might be true. Or you need to say, or you say, why isn't the media covering this? That puts mainstream media and the information environment, what I call the reality-based community, that's science, media, law, and government, puts them in an impossible position. Because if you refute this stuff, you give it airtime and install it in people's brains. If you ignore this stuff, that feeds into the conspiracy theory that it's being covered up. This tactic is very hard to deal with in a democracy. And the way democracies deal with it successfully is they don't do it to begin with. Trump did it every day. You know, we'd see a tweet about people are saying that what's his name? The, the Democratic aid was murdered. This is also very effective. And then there's a third thing he does, and he's a genius at this. We know this because he's told us he's a genius at that, and that's trolling. That's where you use outrage to get inside people's minds. The way the reality-based community subverts this kind of information warfare is usually to ignore it. When people say garbage, you just ignore it. You get on with what you're doing. It's, they shape the agenda that way. Well, we have this cognitive flaw, which is that when people say things that are outrageous, we rush to our defense. We feel we can't ignore that. Even if we know that rushing to our defense strengthens the trolls by giving them oxygen. Well, of course, Trump was doing that every day. And he told us, someone said before he ran for president, someone called him the best troll on the internet. And his response on Twitter was a great compliment. Thank you. So he knows exactly what he's doing when he outrages. Ivanka was in the news in a bad way. He wanted to get her out of the news. So he tweeted that Israel should ban the, the so-called squad for liberal members of Congress from entering. And he said to his aides, that'll change the news cycle for the rest of the day. In those ways, Trump was a very impulsive political figure who sometimes just did stuff randomly, but that allowed him to hide some of the strategy when actually he was acting very deliberately. You know, if you are making ridiculous accusations against people, the alternative to ignoring it is probably even worse. I'm thinking of this uh, Senate candidate, I believe in Delaware, Christine O'Donnell, who at one point had to say, because of, I forget the exact context, you know, I'm not a witch. And of course, nothing better to establish in people's minds the idea that you might be a witch when being on camera saying, I'm not a witch. Exactly. That's right. Psychology has a word for this, which is the familiarity heuristic, which is if we hear something often and it becomes familiar, we are more likely to think it's true, even if the context is the denial of that thing. Raising these ridiculous accusations puts the recipients of them into a lose-lose situation where either they ignore it and allow it to fester 
or they have to go on camera and say the equivalent of I'm not a witch. And that may be even worse. I can see why political consultants say, just ignore that. I have two questions. One is, is there a difference between disinformation, which seems to be your preferred term, and misinformation? Well, they blend together. And I don't spend any time in my book trying to, to sort them because I don't actually think the terminology is, is that important. I think what's more important is the theory about what's going on here. The way you can blend these and use these if you're an information warrior, if you're intent on attacking the system. Technically, you know, misinformation is stuff that's wrong that people spread unknowingly, and disinformation is stuff that's wrong that people spread knowingly. But in practice, one of the things that we're learning so vividly recently is that disinformation, information warfare is not just supply push. It's not just some people pushing things out and manipulating others in the system. It's also demand pull. There's a lot of demand for misinformation, conspiracy theories. We see that with QAnon, whose believers think we're the ones doing the research, we're the ones uncovering it. And what you see in any really good disinformation campaign is a kind of dance between the elites who are putting stuff out, but also listening to the grassroots, figuring out which is the next conspiracy theory that's coming up. Then they amplify that, they cycle it back. And now we see that in Stop the Steal. Trump is much less prominent than he was, though he's still, of course, amplifying Stop the Steal. But that's been taken up now by the grassroots in multiple states, like my home state of Arizona. And they're pushing it in their own directions. So it becomes this almost almost gleeful kind of game that people are playing with each other and with society. How do you defend the constitution of knowledge against disinformation? Because I recognize the danger you, you speak about. I take it very seriously. I also worry that there's a rise of a misinformation expert over the last years and that the misinformation expert both legislates ex cathedra about what is information and what is misinformation, often without themselves being particularly expert in the things they're pronouncing on, and that they tend to always have the same remedy for misinformation, which is to censor. And we've already had at least two very important contexts in which something that was widely proclaimed by the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN to be misinformation or disinformation, often things for which major news outlets were blocked on social media, Nobel Prizes were banned from Facebook. And later, those theories turned out to either be at least partially true or at least very plausible. Theories that are now treated as, as serious by mainstream media outlets. And so I, I worry about the way in which well-intentioned people can use these very real concerns about misinformation or disinformation to erect an effective censorship regime, which actually often will misfire. And that can both have bad substantive consequences if it means that certain truths actually get banned in the name of fighting misinformation, and truth is important. And also, of course, that only serves to delegitimize uh, mainstream institutions over more. But if people see that the New York Times and Washington Post and Facebook and Twitter say a certain theory uh, or a certain idea is unsayable, and then 12 months later, they all say, oh, you know what, actually, now we're saying it ourselves, but we won't be honest about our deep failure on this. Then honestly, I understand why people stop trusting them. Well, this nudges us to the second big information warfare threat in the book, which is cancel culture and the use of organized social coercion. To clarify for me, Yasha, when you use the word censorship, I take it you're not just speaking of government censorship. You're also talking about a decision, say, by Facebook to say, take Donald Trump off the network. Is that right? Or are you using the term in the more specific way? Well, I'm thinking, for example, of a Nobel Prize in virology, who was recognized with Nobel Prize for his work on viruses, who you know doubted that 
uh, the COVID virus had arisen in a natural way, something that's now been taken very seriously as a theory by the White House as well as the mainstream outlets, but that for 12 or 15 months was treated explicitly as mis or disinformation. And he was banned from talking about this on Facebook and YouTube. I mean, obviously it is less worrying than a form of government censorship, but when somebody with serious scientific credentials becomes incapable of communicating to the public about their view of a matter of scientific controversy and great political relevance, that does seem to me to, to constitute a form of censorship. There's two things here implicit in your, your question comment, and they're, they're quite different. One is what is censorship and what's going on in cases like that? I would argue that actually the, the Wuhan virus story is a success story for the mainstream media, not a failure story. It starts with a failure, which is they got it wrong. I should say we got it wrong because I'm a member of the media. But I look back at the original fact check and they were reasonable because they were reflecting what scientists were saying at the time. It turned out to be an error. And Trump complicated things by weaponizing it. But it's also mainstream media, Washington Post, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. doesn't get more mainstream than that. They kept on the story, dug it out, re-elevated it. And now you can't pick up the paper without reading a postmortem from the mainstream media. Where did we go wrong? So the errors are inevitable. And the biases are inevitable because that's how we're wired as human. But the extent of groupthink is not inevitable. I mean, I don't think there's ever a scientific consensus about this. There was... A media simulacrum of a scientific consensus about this. And anybody who diverged from that false consensus was cancelled and unpersoned for 15 months. And the fact that then suddenly, as one within a week, all these mainstream media outlets talk about the theory as though it was always okay to talk about it. I don't think that's a story of media success. I think that's a story of flagrant media failure. Well, I don't quite agree with your characterization of how sudden and heard like and cancel like it was. And maybe that's a separate conversation. I agree it was a mistake. I also think it's been corrected largely because of the, the fact that major media went after it and stayed on it. Or is it because the politics have changed and suddenly the White House has instituted a commission to study this and so the media follows the White House? I mean, this seems like an incredibly partisan story to me. That too, of course. Then you get to the question of what do you do in a heavily manipulated media environment when you know you've got a president who is, for example, altering weather maps? who is saying it didn't rain on the day of his inauguration. Granted, media blew that story. A lot of people blew that story. Science blew that story. But one of the reasons that they blew that story is that they have a guy in the White House who is spreading conspiracies every day, and they're looking with an extremely jaundiced eye, as they should on anything he says. And that's part of the problem of being in one of these distorted media environments. You can't get it right. If you think it's a conspiracy and you're wrong, they say you got it wrong. If you think it's a conspiracy and you're right and you rebut it, you're giving it airtime. This is why you don't want to get into one of these traps to begin with. They create an impossible situation for people to function. I guess what I'm saying is I would shift the blame there to some extent away from mainstream media and toward the people who are creating the environment in which they couldn't function. You asked a bigger question there, which is, so what do we do about all this, this kind of disinformation writ large? And you know, there, Yasha, what's challenging about talking about this is you want to be able to tell people, here are the three things that work. And that's actually not the case, because what works in other societies and in the past, these tactics aren't new. What works is a kind of all of society multi-layered response, where you figure out institutional guidelines and guardrails, that, which is how we've done it in the past. We've had these problems before with the printing press and with 19th century journalism. You begin to create some standards and guardrails that hopefully can guide you through it. 
and bring you to a better place. I think Facebook is doing that now with its oversight board. People are very cynical about that. I don't think they should be because the way we got out of the trap of massive fake news and partisan extreme media in the 19th century was start creating journalism schools, ethics codes, the American Society of Newspaper Editors. That gave us eventually a system that allowed us to get a sense of our bearings as reporters. So some of it is institutional. A lot of it is going to be product design at a very granular level. It could work. A lot of stuff like this could work. On Twitter, the other day, I saw an article, maybe it was by Yasha Monk. I'd probably already read it. So I tweeted it out immediately. I got an interjection. Are you sure you don't want to read this before you tweet it? This has happened to me multiple times when I've tried to tweet my own articles. The answer is not, I think, going to be quote unquote censorship, heavy handed bans. That will have to happen sometimes because people are violating terms of service. But what's really going to work, I think, is figuring out how to disamplify and how to amplify. I believe in freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. These algorithms were tuned, in fact, to put outrage in front of us and often put falsehood in front of us because people click on it. So you're going to have algorithmic changes. A big change that's very important is in the news media, and that's getting a lot more sophisticated about understanding disinformation. And they are. I would argue that in the 2020 election, the news media did a much better job of not just laying prone before falsehoods and conspiracy theories of the kind that we saw in 2016. And now they have reporters covering disinformation. They're better about providing context, far from perfect. As you just point out, there's still these major mistakes and they always will be. There's going to be a public education component. It looks like folks in Europe are are way ahead of us on this, but the evidence suggests that media literacy instruction has some positive effect helping just people understand how to sort through stuff online. Getting Donald Trump out of office is a huge help. A lot of what, where we go from here depends on the behavior of the American electorate. Will they tolerate a massive disinformation campaign run out of the White House, run by a major political party? And these are just examples. But the point there is it's kind of an all of society response. It's like people have compared this to an immune reaction that you've got to develop sort of multiple layers of immune responses in society. And it's it's touch and go. I tell people all the time, you as a European will know this very well. The tactics we're talking about here are tried and true. Lenin used them. Hitler used them. They're very effective and sophisticated and powerful. They have not been deployed in the American context this way before. We've got to take them very seriously and understand them. There is no guarantee that we just sort of get out of it on our own, without thinking it through. Let's talk about the the second half of this um, on your account, which is not disinformation, but cancellation. You had a really wonderful article early in the Days of Persuasion about you know how you distinguish cancellation from straightforward criticism. I think that's a really important point to make, that when people worry about cancellation, it's not worrying about people criticizing you on social media or saying, I disagree with you. So what is the nature of cancellation, first of all? If there are two big contributions I hope the book makes, the first is the concept of a constitution of knowledge the system of norms and institutions that keep us socially, collectively moored to reality. And that's what we're defending. And the second big concept is linking what we've just been discussing, Russian-style disinformation tactics and other stuff that people like Trump and trolls are doing with cancel culture. Cancel culture is done by a very different set of people for the most part. And it's done for different reasons from a different ideology using different methods. But I'm claiming that it actually has the same goal and purpose in mind. And that's to organize and manipulate the social and media environments for political advantage. So censorship doesn't really work, brute force censorship in the world of the internet. And the fact is it never really did work very well. 
But what if you can use instead of brute force, what if you can use social coercion to intimidate people who either take certain points of view or who are just not the kinds of people that you want involved in the dialogue? What if you're a minority, a faction, and you want to dominate the conversation out of all proportion to the merits of your views or or the numbers of your forces? One way to do that, very old, de Tocqueville recognized it in America in the 1830s, is the use of social intimidation, what I call coercive conformity. And that's where you go after the reputations and the livelihoods and the self-respect of people who you disagree with, who you find obnoxious, or usually who you just want to get political advantage over. It's been turbocharged by social media, digital media, which makes it so easy to go after someone. Literally in minutes, you can organize a campaign of hundreds, if not thousands, people going after somebody for something could be offensive or nothing at all. The point here, it's important to realize, first of all, cancellation is not like criticism. Criticism is about the rational exchange of ideas in hopes of finding truth. Canceling is about manipulating the environment for political gain. And it's also important to understand the goal here is to get people to self-chill, to self-censor. So you're not just going after the particular idea that Yasha Monk may have. You don't want safe harbors. You want to make people just afraid that anything they say could get them into trouble. If it comes anywhere near a topic like, in this case, it's usually going to be race or gender, sexuality, but it could be a lot of other things, affirmative action, and you make them very afraid to speak out. That has a couple effects. One is the direct effect, which is just you intimidate them and they're silent and their point of view doesn't get represented. But the other is really sophisticated because it's cognitive, which is that humans look to each other to figure out what's true, what we actually believe. Experimentally proven, if we're the only one in a room of eight people who says X, even if X is demonstrably true, a lot of the time, we'll decide that Y must be right because all those other people can't be wrong. So when counselors mess with the environment to suppress one point of view, they bring in a lot of other people who say, well, maybe this point of view that, you know, that seems so strange and wrong and excessive and illiberal must be right. So you demoralize people, you shut them down. That's canceling and not quite a nutshell. There were famous psychology studies, which if you took into to psych in college, you may remember these old fashioned videos of people in an elevator. And, you know, one of them is just a normal person using the building and eight of them are hired actors. And at one point, as if on cue, the eight actors turn and start to just face the back wall of the elevator. And in a huge number of cases, the real person who doesn't know what's going on sort of looks yeah. very confused yeah, yeah, yeah. and then turns to the back of the elevator as well without saying anything. They're sort of like, oh, of course, it's natural. I'm going to start turning to the back of a wall. So I think that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that in this context. So that's part of what's going on. You know, I think there's also two other things going on, one of which is that if you have a very clear set of rules, you actually have less power because people know exactly what the rules are and they know that they can do everything that falls outside of the rules. If there's a degree of randomness, if sometimes, you know, people get canceled for things that really are offensive and it's sort of predictable, but other times the dog pile goes on something sort of really quite random. I think one example of this was when Barry Weiss wasn't canceled for this, but she was sort of very, very heavily criticized by thousands and thousands of people by tweeting in a celebratory way that an American born daughter of Japanese immigrants who had won a gold medal at the Olympics 
as she said, you know, immigrants get the job done with a reference to Hamilton. And it was clearly celebratory. And they said, well, she's not an immigrant. She's an American. How dare you? You're a racist. You know, very bad faith reading of what Barry was trying to tweet in that particular context. That has the effect of saying, well, look, I just don't know at all anymore what's okay and what's not okay, when I'm going to get dogpiled on when I won't. So let me just stay as far as possible from the zone because I just don't know at what point I'm going to get punished. I think the third element of this is the way in which you have selective enforcement of rules in which, for example, somebody was fired recently for bullying. And it turns out that the accusation of bullying came directly from a meeting in which we pushed back against the demands by some junior staffers to report a particular story in a quote-unquote more woke way. It's those things where I don't know whether this person actually did sort of raise their voice in this meeting or not, uh, whether they really were a bully, but it seems quite clear from the context that if they were a bully, but they were politically online with the rest of the staff, they would not have been punished. And this is something we've seen in many more authoritarian contexts. I'm not saying that we are in an authoritarian context, but that's something that a lot of authoritarian populists do. We kind of are in an authoritarian context. Yeah, that's something that a lot of authoritarian populists do where, you know, everybody cheats on their taxes in a very corrupt country, but it's only the, the members of your position who cheat on their taxes who end up going to prison for it. And I think that's another way of gaining power over the discourse through the use of fear. Yes, all of that is exactly right. And there are many examples of all of these things. For instance, what people are trying to do here is create an environment that's just studded with landmines. You don't know where they are. You don't know where you can walk. And remember, the ultimate goal here is to demoralize the other side because demoralization is demobilization. But, you know, there's the famous case of David Shore a year ago, a left-leaning Democratic political analyst. He tweets out an accurate account of a solid piece of academic work and loses his job the next day after people gang up on him. That's not a conversation about a viewpoint. It's not even really about David Shore. It's about a demonstration that at any given moment, no one is safe. We can come after you. We can go after your friends and your jobs. So we're in charge around here. That's the real agenda here. And Sometimes this is difficult to tell from criticism because it takes the form of criticism. You know, it sounds like, Yasha, you're wrong. And saying that, you know, Yasha, your point of view seems to me an instance of systemic racism can be a form of good faith criticism. However, when we get into the realm of canceling, and I think it's identifiable, we're not in that realm anymore. We're in the realm of using social intimidation to shape the environment. A lot of it in universities. I interviewed tons of people. It's working, Yasha. Professors, students, including people on the left, say, I've kind of given up. It's just so unsafe around here. It, it's so hazardous to, to flout the consensus view that I don't go anywhere near it. I heard that again and again. In the, the cancel culture checklist, you say there's sort of six specific things that allow us to distinguish between a cancel campaign and the kind of criticism that actually is core to public exchange and scientific exchange. The punitiveness deplatforming, organization, secondary boycotts, moral grandstanding, and truthiness. Tell us a little bit about, you know, when you see everybody on social media denouncing something tomorrow, how do you distinguish between, this is legitimate criticism, people are upset about something and they're expressing that, and that is actually completely part and parcel of free speech on social media, and no, what's going on here is actually a concerning instance of cancellation. Well, I do use this diagnostic approach and 
I added actually a seventh criterion in the book, which is reducing entire careers to a single instance, a single statement, stripping context, stripping basically. So here I think is the big principle, and it's really the big principle underlying liberal science, the whole constitution of knowledge, which is we punish our errors instead of punishing each other. That's the great innovation that makes it possible for me to have a vaccine in my arm only a year after the discovery of new virus. So science is biased. Scientists are biased. Scientists make mistakes. Journalism, of course, same thing. The trick to the constitution of knowledge, what I call the reality-based community, isn't that they don't make mistakes. It's that they make them fantastically quickly and sort through them fantastically quickly. And that's possible because for the most part, if you make a mistake, your punishment is that you lose the argument. The argument just flows on and it, it leaves that conversation behind and directs itself to other things. And you live to try another hypothesis and maybe your next one will be right. It's very important, actually, that people not fear that a good faith error will cost them their career, their livelihood. That destroys the creativity that gives us knowledge. So at bottom, when you take all these things, these you know diagnostic cues that that you listed, what they have in common is that they're subverting this process of a good faith effort to make knowledge by seeking error. What they're really out to do is punishing the people who are viewed to be errant by these factions, minorities typically, and manipulating the environment to make error seem too dangerous to even hazard. And that's why you get this stultification and this this dogmatism and sort of the cult dynamics that you increasingly see. Why has cancellation risen as a threat to um, the constitution of knowledge. It's in some ways easier to see the origin of disinformation. I mean, you know, the causes of a rise of something like Donald Trump are themselves complicated. But once you have something like Donald Trump in the White House, or even as a major presidential candidate, it's easy to see why disinformation suddenly takes a more central role. I think with, with a rise of cancellation campaigns, it's a little less clear. Is the source just technological? Is it the existence of Twitter with its algorithm that favors the most controversial tweet? Or is there a broader reconfiguration of our moral, political, intellectual landscape that helps to explain <laughs> the, the centrality? Am I allowed to say yes? All of that. I'd like to get your view on this, actually, because I think you're one of the world's most insightful people on that question. It's it's a perfect storm, I think. The, the technique itself is ancient. As I mentioned, Tocqueville cited it as the biggest threat to freedom in America in the 1830s. John Stuart Mill cited it as the biggest threat to freedom in Britain in 1859. Nothing new about using social coercion to create spirals of silence, as they're called. So what turbocharges it now? People who look at this list a bunch of things that all happen at once. One is, of course, the technology, which changes it from really quite complicated to organize a campaign against someone. You know, you'd have to what? You'd have to do it by mail or take out an ad in the newspaper. Well, now it's just trivially easy to dogpile Yasha Monk. Literally, you can do it with a few clicks of a button. A second is the emergence of emotional safetyism as a doctrine, which is the notion that if you're saying something I disagree with, you're actually committing an act of violence against me, committing a human rights violation. This turns out to be a powerful tool for intimidating people. It's what was used at the New York Times to fire James Bennett. A lot of staffers said that running an editorial we disagree with caused us was the equivalent of violence. It made us unsafe. So that's gotten a lot of ideological traction. A third is generational change. A fourth is a very powerful tool that people discovered recently. We've got to change this, Yasha. 
we have persuasion. And that's that employers are a very vulnerable target. They are wired to avoid controversy. They're not there to promote free speech by their employers. So if I go after Yasha and Yasha has an employer, the easiest way for the employer to solve that problem is fire Yasha. That's a major vulnerability. And that was, I think, only recently discovered. And then you've got, remember, these are powerful tactics of manipulation. And what's being appealed to here are deeply good things. For instance, anti-racism. I think you and I and almost everyone agrees with where that's coming from. And I've learned a lot from anti-racist ideas. I've changed as a result, and I'm grateful for that. The problem comes when people don't just argue for the ideas, but use coercion, illiberal means to regulate how we talk about those ideas. But then the problem is, well, no one wants to be accused of being a racist. We want to be on the right side of this issue. That makes it hard for us to distinguish between the ideas themselves, which may be good or may have good in them, and the tactics that are being used to promote the ideas, which can be illiberal and authoritarian. I think there's two different things going on here. I do think that a lot of bad views have become mainstreamed because of fear of criticizing them. You know, I'm a proud anti-racist and my family's history pushes me towards that, both for political ideals that uh, my parents and grandparents had and, you know, the experience of racial extermination that runs in my family. I do fear that a lot of what's now called anti-racism in the United States is actually a racial essentialism, which is deeply inimical to the project of building a society in which people from different racial, ethnic, and religious groups can live fairly and peacefully next to each other. So I think my stance on this is that we need to reclaim the term anti-racism for something that I regard as being more truly anti-racist. Speaking to the broader question, I don't know how optimistic I am. I think the fight is now in the open. I think for a little while, you know, there were certain corners of the United States, corners of the democratic world, in which these ideas were sort of ruling unimpeded. Certain university departments, certain media outlets. I think as they are being very rapidly mainstreamed, as they are being pumped into VHR departments of major corporations and so on and so forth, there's starting to be more resistance to them. And so I think the debate is starting to be out in the open because people who are not in as rarefied circles, who don't have as strong a self-definition as being you know, in a particular part of the left-leaning world or the humanitarian world or whatever, sort of have less bound up in speaking up against sort of a particular kind of moral orthodoxy. But I also think that the constraining power of it keeps growing. So, you know, I, I'm glad for this fight to be out in the open because I think ultimately, you know, the idea of philosophical liberals and for that matter, the idea of people on the left to whom I still count myself are stronger. I think that we have a better vision of a society in which we care about truth and we care about equality and we care about fairness, uh, but we build that in a way that is not constraining and authoritarian, but doesn't essentialize people depending on their race and gender, but doesn't try to always emphasize what divides us over what could unite us. But it's going to be a very long and hard struggle, I think. Well, take Marxism, for example. It's wrong and dangerous as a doctrine, but we also learn something from encountering it. And we never lived in a United States where someone who challenged Marxism was going to be fired from their job or ostracized by their friends. So we were able to have conversation about it and ultimately debunk it. Can you imagine a world where the same is true for whatever label we use for these woke ideologies, these authoritarian left-wing ideologies? Are they just inherently authoritarian 
they will attempt to suppress conversation that you, you can't have an argument on the merits ever. I mean, I think the analogy to Marxism is, is exactly the right one, and not because, I mean, there's a set of people who say that the intellectual origin of woke ideology is Marxist, and I think there's an element of truth to that, but it's also wrong in various important ways. So I'm not making a claim about its intellectual derivation, but I do think that what we're likely to face in the coming decades is the kind of intellectual battle between philosophical liberalism and what was the Yang calls the successor ideology, what I prefer to call the competitor ideology, because I don't think it has yet won. That, you know, the fight between Marxism on one side and social democracy or welfare state capitalism on the other side has looked like in much of the Western world for a large part of the 20th century. Now, I think you slightly understate the intellectual costs of that. I don't know that we learned as much from Marxism as you imply. And I think, uh, you know, the fights over it were incredibly bitter. And there certainly were whole academic disciplines and departments, for example, where people who didn't have an orthodox Marxist view did not have a chance of employment. And I actually think that that in many ways misled and impoverished fields in the humanities and social sciences for a large part of the 20th century. And I think many of those fields are richer for having overcome that orthodoxy over the last decades. So the analogy is right. I'm more concerned about it than you appear to be. I don't want to seem unconcerned, Yasha, anything, but I guess what I'm asking is, can we have the conversations without having the cancelings or the cancelings inherent? Because I think if we can have the conversations without the cancelling, without the intimidation, the authoritarianism, the anti-pluralism, what I call purism, you know, the notion that all other views need to be driven from the field by whatever means are available, I think if we have the conversation, it probably comes out pretty well. I think we probably wind up learning something from, I don't know, the 1619 Project or take whatever controversial item you want and incorporating it and, and synthesizing it. So that's my hope. But, but in order to do that, I guess this is sort of the core claim of the book, that the first you have to defeat the information warfare that is trying to prevent that conversation from ever even happening. You have to understand that the context for these conversations has got to be one of structured, critical, good faith conversation. That's the constitution of knowledge. That's what it's doing. It's creating a context where we can channel disagreement so that we can learn instead of just talk. So unless we first defeat the cancelers and the trolls and the propagandists and all these other forces, which, which are so active right now, then it's very hard to win the battle of ideas or even to wage the battle of ideas. Does that seem like a meaningful distinction? Yes, I think I think it does, and I think I think that's right. How possible that is, I'm not sure. And you know, I'm not a historian of 20th century academia, for example. But I think it took many, many decades for Marxist and non-Marxist scholars to coexist peacefully within various departments. And I think even then, often they sort of continued to work in parallel to each other, where perhaps they reached a kind of detente. And there was a sort of understanding that in a particular department, sort of about half of the people are deeply from a tradition, half of the people are not, and they sort of share power in a certain kind of way. How fruitful the exchanges between them were, I don't know. There are some examples of intellectual currents that perhaps were fruitful in that way. I'm thinking of something like G.A. Cohen's No Bullshit Marxism group that sort of tried to examine the key claims of Marxism in an analytical and philosophically rigorous manner in the 1970s and so on and then led to some reasonably interesting developments in political philosophy further down the road. But that was about 
a hundred years after Marx's death, you know, ultimately, I think, sort of ran aground as well. Perhaps we're now stretching the, the limits of usefulness of this metaphor. You know, one of the things that I don't think this conversation has brought out yet, but your book does beautifully, is to actually speak to the beauty of a constitution of knowledge and the need for it, which is to say, what is it about science? What is it about the pursuit of knowledge that is so important and so noble and allows us to make such great progress? Tell us a little bit more about the thing that is actually worth defending. Oh, thank you for that. It's natural in these conversations to focus on the second half of the book, which is these, these worrisome attacks and how to cope with them. But if the book makes a contribution that lasts, it will be the first half of the book, which says there is a constitution of knowledge. We forget that because it worked so well for so long that we just assume marketplace of ideas, free speech, and everything takes care of itself will just sort of automatically come to truth through an open exchange. And, and in fact, that's not how it works at all. If you just leave people alone to have open exchange without any structure, any rules, any institutions, they associate with people who agree with them. They engage in bias confirmation. They divide into sects. They go to war. And that's 200,000 years of human history. You use the word beauty, I think, in describing the constitution of knowledge. And that's true in much the same way that we can use that term in describing Madison's constitution, which is also in some ways a thing of, of beauty, of great elegance. And, and the reason is Madison understands that the only force capable of counteracting ambition is other ambition. So he pits them against each other in a socially constructive way by forcing people to compromise and saying the only way you can make a law is by working cooperatively with other people, strangers, people you don't know, people you disagree with. And you think this could never work. This is a recipe for chaos. But I argue it's, you know, it's basically liberalism and it's our greatest social invention. The same is true, but even, even more so for the constitution of knowledge, which is, although unwritten, a real constitution. It's got lots of rules and structures, but it's based on the same idea, which is in order to make knowledge, it's not enough for you to sit in your room online and think. It's not enough for you to talk only to people who agree with you. You're going to have to go out and engage a global network of people, most of whom are complete strangers, most of whom have very different views and persuade them and talk to them and interact with them in structured ways with things like peer review and fact-checking and through journals and organizations. You're going to have to learn whole vocabularies that allow you to engage these other people productively. But once you do that, you will have a global network of millions and millions of minds, places around the world, multiple languages, that are capable of acquiring a hypothesis and checking it within hours and doing so in a cooperative way that doesn't require anybody in charge. I mean, when you think about this, it's absolutely fantastic. I argue that it is a species transforming technology. Every human could die. Our knowledge, our objective knowledge would still be there. And an alien civilization could come to our planet, decode our books and our databases and reconstitute and use all of that. This has, as Jonathan Haidt puts it, this has elevated our performance far above our design capacity. I love the word beautiful in applying it, so in describing it. Thank you. I'm trying to think through sort of the implications of that. I mean, one way of thinking about this is how do we defend the constitution of knowledge against attacks? We need to do that. Another question is, how do we build on the strengths of a constitution of knowledge? What can we do as a society in order to double down on all of the amazing things yes. the constitution of knowledge allows us yes. to do? We need to play some defense, but what does the offense part of this look like? 
One of them is, this goes back to a point you were making earlier about problems in journalism and an even bigger problem in academia. The constitution of knowledge only works when you have lots and lots of viewpoint diversity. We never see our own biases. We believe we're unbiased and everyone else is biased. You can only find errors if you have lots of different points of view. Unfortunately, there are a lot of newsrooms now and a lot of academic departments where there just aren't enough, frankly, conservative voices, right? And center right. And I'm not necessarily talking about who did you vote for. I'm talking about classical liberal perspectives. And when you get in environments that are tilted so heavily to one side, you make errors, you make mistakes, you don't see problems, you fail to ask important questions. And there's now worrisome evidence that that's happening in a systematic way in academia. It's certainly happening in journalism in some important newsrooms. And so I think something we've got to do to strengthen the system is take viewpoint diversity as seriously, every bit as seriously as we do ethnic identity and demographic diversity. We've got to start looking around and saying, what are the obstacles to recruiting and attracting conservative voices in sociology departments? We're not used to thinking that way. And I'm not suggesting, you know, we ask everyone who they voted for, but there are a lot of implicit, can we call it structural discrimination in a lot of fields. And too many people in the reality-based community have allowed that to happen for too long. And one of the interesting things is that whenever somebody raises this critique, the answer is, well, any intelligent and decent person would be on the left. Right. And so you are actually evil for suggesting this, which I think, you know, whenever I've tweeted anything that goes within a hundred miles of this, that is the overwhelming response. And I think What's interesting in that is the implicit statement that anybody who has views or values about the world that differ from the current consensus within academia must not be worth listening to in the first place. So it is actually a great demonstration of exactly the kind of group thing that this demonstrates. And of course, the point is that there's a whole broad range of views that people have had across history and that people have across the world today that are just vastly different from you know, the views of 99% of people in academia right now. And it's an incredible arrogance to think that People at every juncture in human history have been wrong in these deep ways. You know, in our case, uniquely, will the views on which 99% of us agree right now turn out to look wonderful, enlightened, and smart 50 or 100 years from now. So this is not a point about getting more Trump voters into academia. It's a point about broadening the set of ideas, the set of approaches, and challenging that kind of group thing. It's just good science. And I, a friendly amendment, everything you just said is exactly right, is we need to remember that in these environments where there's insufficient viewpoint diversity, you, you don't need to assume that, you know, the anthropology department or whatever at some liberal arts college is full of radical fuming Marxists who are out to stamp out all dissent. Many of them are very good people who aren't even aware there is dissent because they're in this environment, which has become so one-sided. So a lot of the solution is just creating more of this more of this diversity. And that's, you know, I pushed back earlier when you mentioned the herd behavior in media. And I think really the right answer to the point you made is that's reflecting a lack of this diversity. And that's something that we, you and I, and those who are friends of the reality-based community need to start embracing. Let me ask you a final question. On the pessimistic ledger about the future of a constitution of knowledge, I would point out that people don't like the ideas to be challenged. Political power has the ability to misshape human systems in deep ways. And historically speaking, the time in human history when we've been able to sustain something like a constitution of knowledge is very short and geographically limited. 
On the optimistic side of a ledger, I suppose, I would put the fact that there is some commitment to it, uh, at least in liberal societies, the fact that it allows us to do very, very important things, and the fact that perhaps societies that are better at maintaining a constitution of knowledge are likely to outcompete societies that don't. So there's a kind of quasi-evolutionary pressure to maintain and adopt a constitution of knowledge. I'm sure I've missed lots of factors and you've thought about this much more carefully than I have, but how do those balance out? How optimistic are you about the fact that humans... I was going to ask you, Yasha, because now we're in a realm where it's just purely a matter of personal opinion. One thing I can say is that if we don't understand that there is a constitution of knowledge, that there are structures and systems, institutions, norms, nameable people, places like the American Association for the Advancement of Science, agencies like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, nameable individuals like Liz Cheney, who stood up for truth at great personal cost. We need to understand that those people and institutions and norms are there and we can't take them for granted and we need to defend them and not just assume everything works out. So I can say if that if we just, you know, stumble ahead blindly and let all these attacks proceed, there's going to be serious problems. Let's put it that way. If that happens, then we're looking at Russian style disinformation being a feature of American politics for a very long time and getting worse, not better. If we do wake up and become more conscious that we have a constitution of knowledge, that we need to defend it, then we can defend it, then you tell me. But, but I think if we do that, then we squash the other side like a bug. Maybe not right away, but we have the advantage of enormous institutional depth and we have the advantage of reality. You know, ultimately that is a problem, right? For trolls and disinformation artists and cancelers. They lose touch with reality. They, they can't put that vaccine in my arm. They're parasitic. They're nihilistic. They're negative. All they can do is restrict. So if we get our act together, I think, yeah, actually, we've seen off much worse, significantly worse challenges in the past. I think we will again. But that's a conditional statement. What do you think? Well, I think you make a very persuasive case. And in the interest of my good mood today, I'm going to accede <laughs> to it. Jonathan, thank you so much for this important book. Thank you so much for all the great work you do. And thanks so much for your contributions to persuasion, which will only become more frequent in the next months. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Mm -hmm.